Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. Today... We have an interview recorded last autumn, in a time before coronavirus reared its ugly crowns. Back in November, I spoke to Chris Forth about a different aspect of our relationship to our and others' bodies, fat. Chris describes his book, Fat, A Cultural History of the Stuff of Life, as a study in the formation of stereotypes, and in particular, the negative stereotypes that have accreted around fat and fat people, over time. Those stereotypes may have gone into overdrive in the latter part of the 20th century, but Chris shows that there was already ambivalence about corpulence in the ancient world. The building blocks of later stereotypes were fashioned early. Rather than a familiar narrative of something good becoming ugly and then bad, he shows how an early ambiguity mutated over time. He also reminds us that fat is not just an adjective. It's also a noun. It's a substance with properties of its own that played an important, sometimes surprising, part in human history. Rachel Louise Moran, reviewing the book in the journal Medical History, wrote, Forth builds on the existing scholarship to contribute something wholly new to the literature. Through his investment in the history of emotions, His fascination with the literal substance of fat and the extraordinary temporal and geographic scope of the book forth produces something quite unique. He uses an extraordinary variety of sources, from ancient artefacts to 18th century political cartoons and paintings, and from colonial travelogues to weight loss advice books from the early 20th century. Chris is a professor of history at the University of Kansas, where his research revolves around the cultural history of gender, sexuality, the body and the senses. When we spoke, he began by telling me how his book on fat had in part grown out of his interest in the Dreyfus Affair in late 19th century France and the presentation of masculinity in the battle over Dreyfus's guilt or innocence. So here's an anecdote before we begin. The novelist Émile Zola, the author of the open letter J'accuse, who played a critical part in the Dreyfus Affair, once lost £30 through dieting, in particular by cutting out bread. F.W.J. Hemmings writes in his biography of the author, Edmond de Goncourt was astonished when he met Zola at a dinner party. 
It's positively true, he noted in his diary that night. His stomach has melted away, and his personality has, as it were, become fine-drawn and taut. And what is particularly curious is that the delicately moulded features he used to have in the past, which were all lost and buried in the round fat face he had acquired in the last few years, have reappeared, so that he is really beginning to look once more like Manet's portrait, but with a hint of wickedness in his expression. I was looking at how the ways in which various French intellectuals were positioning themselves in terms of the masculinity of their claims, you know, and uh, and their role in the affair. And I became very intrigued when I saw the novelist Emile Zola, who had been fat at one point. He and many of his contemporaries made a made a big point about how he lost weight and how how losing weight was actually a sign of just how much he had mastered himself and become heroic. And now that he was able to do that, he was able to take a much more active and heroic role in defense of, of Dreyfus and his interests. And this connected very well with other things I had been encountering about what I see as, at least in terms of Western culture, the perceptions of the intrinsic femininity of fat as softness, as suggesting complacency, which is not necessarily true, obviously. And so this turned me on to the idea that even though, I mean, we all know that fat, you know, is described as a feminist issue, it's actually probably better to describe it as a feminine issue, as right. something that relates to deeply ingrained ideas about femininity, in which, in which case then fat men's masculinity becomes called into question. And this was really kind of my way into this. It wasn't so much questions of appearance, which are obviously important. It was more the kinds of invisible qualities that appearance supposedly pointed to that really intrigued me. So having sort of picked up on Zola and his diet, I guess you could have limited your study to the 19th century or the 19th and 20th centuries, and you would have still had a huge amount of material to to get your teeth into. So what was it that persuaded you to go all the way back to um, ancient antiquity to, to to cast your net so wide? Yeah, it started as a whim, actually, because um, I when I was approached to do this book, I initially planned to just do what everybody does, which is assuming that this is really a modern problem, just begin at the time of the Renaissance and and just go from there. This has been the standard periodization of almost everybody, um, not everybody, almost everyone who's done this kind of work. And then I, it occurred to me that, well, you know, I, I really ought to just look at antiquity anyway, just to get it out of the way. You know, to the plan was just to, to be able to say that, well, I looked at it and it confirms the idea that fatness was not a problem before the 1500s or so. And then it became a problem because like like a lot of modernists, I mean, I'm pretty much a modernist. The world before the Middle Ages, actually, the world before the early modern period is I just don't want to know a whole lot about it. And in fact, this forced me into looking at that very carefully. And I, I started to realize that there's an awful lot going on here. And what it would also occur to me is that it's not only that these were significant issues in antiquity and in the middle in the Middle Ages, even if they were still pointed to the ambiguity of fat and fatness, but it also revealed to me a modern insistence upon returning to antiquity for models, which means that there's not only is antiquity relevant 
but it has there's been an, an insistence upon its relevance throughout the early modern and modern periods, which means that I don't think it's possible to look at any of these things in isolation from uh, what was going on uh, a very, very long time ago. And the the example which keeps recurring in the book is that of the Spartans, isn't it? The Spartans keep being held up as this sort of pinnacle of, you know, the perfect balance of the inner and the outer and the moral and, the, you know, sort of having real moral fibre and that being expressed through um, their bodies and their attitude to their bodies and to diet. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting um, to look at a, a kind of a popular depiction of the Spartans, the film 300 that came out some years ago which is based on a graphic novel, the press buzz in reaction to the film was mostly about abs. <laughs> it was mostly about how, how did these men do this? Um, and then, of course, you know, it. I don't know that Frank Miller, who, who wrote the original graphic novel, was very aware of this, but there was a myth about the Spartans, about expelling or punishing fat men precisely because of their indulgence, their softness, which made them unsuitable as warriors, which made them seem to be lacking in virtue and things like that. So yeah, this, the persistence of what's called the Spartan Mirage, I think is really quite fascinating. When I was reading your book, I thought, I wonder if anyone has produced a Spartan diet. And I went online. And of course, someone has trademarked the Spartan diet. And then you think about, you know, other diets like the, the paleo diet and the Mediterranean. Diet. There is, as you say, this great hankering after some lost golden age, which had the secret and your book, of course, as we as we all really know in our hearts, reveals that there, there was no golden age that we've lost. It doesn't seem to be. I mean, I, I do know that the Greeks um, and the Romans were preoccupied with these issues, but not for the same reasons that, that we are, obviously. And the Romans admitted, uh, you know, uh, they were quite ambiguous, actually, about things. They would allow elites and male citizens to have a there's a real latitude allowed there but nevertheless the language that was described was which basically associated fatness with luxury with effeminacy with foreignness and uh so the even they had a disjunction between their ideals and their reality but we tend to fixate on the ideals and aren't as concerned about what may have been the reality of the time so by going back to the ancient world you discovered that it's always been a problematic relationship, the way that, that cultures have responded to fat, to fat bodies, has never been uncomplicated. Although we, quite a lot of us, I guess, have grown up with this sort of myth that it is really a purely modern phenomenon, as you were saying, that it sort of starts in the early modern period or perhaps even later than that. But even going back to the ancient world, there is ambiguity. There's, is anxiety the, the right kind of word or is that a later phenomenon? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I'm not certain of that. I, I do know that there's ambiguity. And so alongside what seems to be uh, a lot of warnings about what, what can happen if one becomes too fat, and also what ancient sources had in mind when they referred to too fat was would have been really, for them, really quite fat. And uh, so I do think that there was much more flexibility in terms of what might have been called the, uh, you know, the, you know, the quote unquote normal body uh, during that time. Anxiety. Yeah, I think the anxiety, that's probably more modern. Now, another key concept in the book is that of disgust. It seems as though that is something which comes along 
with the early Christian fathers in the the, the early centuries of um, of the of the previous millennium, well, two millennia ago. What was feeding into that? Because they were they were sometimes drawing on classical antecedents, but they were they were approaching them in a slightly different way, weren't they? And introducing this element of disgust. Yeah, uh, early Christianity is really fascinating because in in some respects it adds an additional ingredient that we we do see very much in the modern period, and that, and that like you say, is, is, is the element of disgust. Partly, um, early Christians, they radicalized the distinction between humans and animals, and quite a lot of stereotypes about fat and fatness um, revolve around this idea of fattening, which suggests that somebody has been fattened or is fattening themselves in the manner of a domesticated animal, and the purposes of fattening domesticated animal is for the purposes of of consumption or domination, slaughter, etc. And so to be fattened is to be disempowered. And there's that dimension which is um, inherited from the Hellenistic world. Early Christians appropriated that, sharpened the distinction between humans and animals because it added something different that the Romans didn't really have, which is this connection between fat and filth. And even though this is present in a kind of moderate way in Greek and Roman depictions of fat and thin soil, the idea that what fattens thin soil is excrement. And so there was, a, and of course, fat soil suggests a connection with dirt anyway. But the Christians radicalized this um, along with the radicalization of the human animal distinction. And they fixated on this connection between fat and excrement in a way that allowed them to depict in very, very glaring terms the fallen and putrefied nature of really organic life and just real physical bodies. And I think that this this is something that I think does lead up into the modern period because I don't think that, that there are a, quite a number of Christian fitness and diet groups out there who articulate some variation on this very, very deeply ingrained theme. And um, and that that I find I found interesting. So is this in the early Christian period? Is this when we get this sort of notion of verticality sort of creeping in, where you've got you've got the corporeal, you've got the gustatory, you've got the excremental, you've got the reproductive, you've got the sort of lower regions, and then you've got this sort of aspiration towards transcendence to to become a you know a sort of spiritual transcendent ethereal being in the afterlife. And that, that seems to me to be a very powerful kind of vertical there that persists. And, you know, you, you trace it in, in mutated form right into our, our present era. But is that, is that sort of springing up first in that early Christian period? Early Christians, I think, accelerated that, but they didn't invent it. In fact, I think that if you go to Plato, you already right. see a, a pronounced, what, what I, I'm borrowing Peter Schloterdijk's uh, phrase of a, a vertical tension between the masses, I'm, I'm, this is from Plato's Republic, of the masses who fatten themselves, they never look up, they, they look down at the ground, and they fatten themselves, and, they've, and they have sex. And for him, that is the, the opposite to what, I guess, what the truly human should do, uh, which is to look upwards, to overcome that. And for Plato, Plato had a very ambiguous relationship with the body because in, in in some of his moments plato is suggesting that the body is to some extent irrelevant to the world the real world of forms ideas and that kind of thing so uh, i think it's uh, i think it's a it's a group effort really you know when you think about it right. in terms of pagans and christians 
Now, what, what about someone who's maybe sort of forming the objection to what we're saying and thinking about depictions of particularly powerful men, maybe thinking about Holbein's Henry VIII as a sort of embodiment of regal power and a very physical and obese by any, by any t- stretch of the imagination. I think you quote his, his waist measurement, but, but nonetheless projecting a different kind of corporeal reality from, you know, the, the sort of animalistic grubbing around uh, in, in the dirt kind of view that we've just yeah. been talking about. Yeah, of course. And I think this points to what I, what I see as the in- intrinsic ambiguity of fat, particularly when it comes to male bodies. There is a history, and which actually persists to the present day, a tendency to, to allow certain degrees of what you might call just bigness which can be to some extent overlapping with fatness in men because it's it's widely considered to be more more appropriate for that men are bigger and taller and all of that and so the uh, the kind of physical bulk that fatness can can bring about to some extent can reinforce certain notions of masculinity but these ideas of masculinity are dependent upon other things one of which is behavior um, one of which is impression management. So in, in the case of Henry VIII, you've got a guy who, uh, well, in terms of his deeds, was relatively successful in getting his own way. Uh, he was able to impose himself. His uh, and, and, and in Holbein's portraits, I mean, he is presented as a, a menacing, glowering, almost monument. And I use the word monumentality in reference to certain men, certain men who are fat, but who may also be tall. And I think that height here mitigates some of the potential negativity of this. But so too does, um, I use the concept of the status shield as well, is that, again, if if one's deeds seem to reinforce a sense of dominance and power and therefore a certain kind of masculinity, then one's status there does kind of protect one from other kinds of uh, uh, stereotyping. The case of Socrates is is a, is a good one. I mean, here's a guy who was, you know, fat, and and people kind of, you know, historically have kind of complained and you know l- regretted that he didn't look better. And you see this through the early modern modern periods, but very few people connected that fatness to. Uh, no, nobody ever called Socrates a fathead, you know, for example. And uh, and I think there are, there are reasons why. So I think the concept of a of a status shield is relevant there. So men, I mean, depending upon circumstance, are able to get away with more, but it depends upon, like I said, lots of other things. And having, a, frankly, a, a good tailor, like Henry VIII, and uh, somebody who's willing to present you in the the appropriate light, I think, helps. Yes, because you, I guess you sort of counterpose the picture of Henry VIII by Holbein with a, a cartoon depiction of Louis XVI, where he's depicted as, is it a pig he's, or a fat sheep? I can't remember. He's a pig. Yeah. So the satirists get their, get their teeth in, to, in that way. So fat, as you say, fat is, is polyvalent. Yeah. Uh, Henry VIII, I mean, despite the, the, the depiction, the Holbein's you know, very successful depiction of him as monumental, he needed a special chair to get around his palaces because he couldn't walk. And so had he been depicted in that chair, as he probably was much of the day, I think Henry VIII would have had a very different reputation. And it's relevant that uh, unlike uh, a lot of other fat kings in the Middle Ages, Henry never got the sobriquet, you know, the fat. He was never called Henry the Fat. And I think that's significant. Unlike uh, Charles the Fat, Louis the Fat of France, whose fatness was a liability.
Now, your book, Chris, is not just or not even principally about the depiction of fat. You're also really interested and really interesting on the inherent properties of fat. So you you mentioned the fat soil. You also talk about how it was used as a source of light, of course, as a source of nourishment, and things like human fat used to be sold for its perceived medical properties. You could go to an apothecary and buy some human fat rendered down from the body of a criminal and apply it to a wound or to a joint. So you're really interested in all the on all these properties that that human beings have identified in fat. Yeah, I mean, and this um, this was a, a very different dimension because when I was asked to do this book, what they really wanted was a, a heavily illustrated coffee table book, <laughs> is the impression, <laughs> something with not a lot of text. <laughs> and I was fine with that until I started, you know, reading too much. And I started to realize that there's a whole material dimension here. And it reinforced my suspicion that visuality is not, that gets you far when thinking about bodies, but... Um, it's also a question of what these bodies are on a tactile, lived level. And I think that uh, thinking about the materiality of that in relation to human as well as non-human bodies, but also in relation to even non-animal things like uh, like soil, revealed just how much more expansive one needed to be when thinking about fat. Yeah, and as you say, tactility is something you keep coming back to. And it can take the form of greasiness or stickiness or tackiness or your fingers sort of sink into it. You see that as a really important dimension in how fat has been perceived and why we why we have such a problem with it. I, I think so, because um, the conceptual springboard for the book is the concept of disgust, which is pretty unavoidable today when we talk about fat bodies. And though I don't suggest that, you know, there's a you know, that disgust is quite the right word to use for earlier periods. If you look at the ingredients of disgust and what philosophers and social psychologists say about what's at work in the emotion, it is not a reaction primarily to to visuality, to spectacle. It's actually a reaction to touch and taste, perhaps, and really contact. And so in the case of disgust, what is repellent is contact with that which is generating the sphere. In which case then, you know, it means that uh, to understand fat means having to look, requiring us to look beyond merely the visual, to look at things that are, well, actually to kind of feel things that are not, uh, that that uh, a mere picture can't really convey. Now, you mentioned, Chris, already that the ancient Greeks attributed Fat was one of the the characteristics and the sort of effeminacy and softness was a characteristic they attributed to Asiatic peoples, the other. And this is something which we see, I guess, another of those themes which, which comes back in your book. And it comes back, I guess, most powerfully when Europe reaches its colonial period. So what what was the West doing in that period in its depiction of other races? And how was it, why was it building perceptions about fat into that? Reconfiguring some of those things which were already present in, in ancient Greece. Yeah, yeah. Um... Beginning around, well, you see this in the 16th century uh, during the Age of Exploration, there were certain explorers who were, were, were men of science, and uh, they took note of the fact that, you know, in certain, you know, non-Western cultures, there was not only a tendency for at least the, uh, the leaders to be fat, but to really want to be fat, 
to seek this out as a as a badge of uh, as a badge of status as a sign of masculinity and etc and this is around the same time that in the western world elites are starting to very to really quite sharpen their images of their own bodies to become much more concerned about eating foods that are refined and that are not directly connected to earthiness to adopt manners that are much more rarefied than they had been earlier to which which you could see as attempts to separate elites from animality from materiality and things like that as a kind of fantasy of transcendence and this is taking place as westerners are exploring other parts of the world and it becomes sharper and sharper certainly by the 19th century where you have extremely sharp distinctions between uh, for example uh britons and uh particularly africans indians some chinese uh and the argument being that well these are populations who not only tend to become fat but they wish it to happen they desire it and they actually not only do they desire it in the, their own bodies but they desire it in the bodies of their of their erotic partners from the western perspective and here i use britain as a because uh, a lot of there's a lot of material in the british scene here it, it, it's the idea that well we may become fat but we don't want to we don't seek it out because our our tastes our desires our aspirations are much more lofty than that less i guess much much less material than that and so hence the, this i think works very well with 19th century you know denigrations of uh, particularly africans as uh, as being closer to animals vis-a-vis you know uh, loftier enlightened europeans and i think you see this quite a bit but the origins of this too are ancient really they don't they don't begin in the early modern period because there's already a deep history of greeks and romans depicting so-called asiatic peoples in fairly similar light just without the concept of race to support it they're more focused on environment but doesn't really change the general sense that what we do is different from what they do and i think that is the, the basic continuity that we see there and yeah. finally not, not to belabor this by the colonial period european elites are explicitly referring back to hippocrates and and other classical antecedents to to support their contemporary prejudices I know we're covering a lot of ground very quickly here, Chris, and I'm sure people will, will want to read the book and, and hear your arguments in much more detail. But I, I wanted to fast forward, really, to the last few decades. And it seems that something quite significant shifted, maybe shifted up a gear, in the stigmatisation of fat in the 1970s. Can you say a little bit about what you think was was happening then? Because obviously a lot of the things which fed into that were already present, you know, in the 19th century and early decades of the 20th. But what was it? Why did things seem to take such a, a gear shift in the 1970s? And, yeah. and since? It's by the 70s that you really have a certain neoliberal mindset really developing, even though the origins of that go further back in time. This insistence upon individual responsibility, a diminishing tolerance i suppose for uh ideas about about i guess about the commons about the collect about collective good uh, an increasingly sedentary culture even more so than before as uh, uh automated workplaces and in in time you know uh the dawning digital age all of these things are contributing to uh to conditions that make fatness even more likely but at the same time you have the possibility of becoming even more upset and repulsed by this. Partly, I think, in another dimension to this, I think, is something that 
earlier centuries didn't really have, which was even though there may have been a a kind of a almost utopian wish to have a body that could be free of these inconvenient organic dimensions, by the 20th century, you have more and more people thinking that it's technologically within grasp. And I think that this contributes to this sense of that. And there are other dimensions as well. I do think that the, uh, the, the women's movement does focus more attention on women's agency, which um, obviously poses a degree of competition in the, uh, in the larger workplace. But it also puts focus on women's bodies as, as things that, if they are to reveal themselves as being in control, as agentic and autonomous, that cannot be fat because the deeper history of, uh, of women's bodies is sometimes connected to um, ideas about their own subordination and domestication. And the metaphor of the fattened, the domesticated fattened animal is very relevant in the 19, certainly by the 1970s, because I know Germaine Greer makes ample use of that in, in the female eunuch. And so um, I think there's quite a lot of things um, going on in the past, within the past 50, 60 years that um, I think would really warrant more study than I uh, was. A, I really had the space to do. You write about in the the early part of the 20th century, the body being conceived as a machine, as being purely functional and lean and aerodynamic and speedy. We're now living in an era, in an era of capitalism where we've gone into a digital realm and the, the organisation is supposed to be disembodied and lean and stripped down and carved out. And it is quite persuasive, this idea that there the form of capitalism that we're living with, you know, having gone from the agricultural to the machine age and now into the sort of digital age, where capital is everywhere and nowhere uh, simultaneously, that's given us a whole new type of anxiety about our embodied selves. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, I use the, the metaphor of spirituality in the, in the conclusion because it's almost as if neoliberal societies are enforcing a kind of fantasy about disembodiment, about uh, of, of a, a kind of spiritualization of bodily life, which which allows you know secular fitness culture to to overlap in some very interesting ways with Christian fitness culture because in weird ways they they have a similar kind of aspiration both you know would certainly like to see this kind of a heaven on earth in a way um, and one group actually thinks that there will be in a heaven where those, but that will be the case others will make try to make heaven here Gwyneth Paltrow sprang to mind in in this sort of vision of the sort of almost ethereal, perfectible body that comes mainly to white women with, with very large bank accounts in California. That's always been the case, hasn't it? That the stigmatization has has fallen disproportionately on certain groups. And today women and people of ethnic minorities and people who are who are poor are bearing most of the brunt. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I think that uh, particularly in the twentieth century, elites who imagine themselves as being, you know, metaphorically higher uh, than others, also imagine themselves as being, in a, in a physical sense, lighter, faster, more efficient, and therefore, to some extent, less bound to the organic and the animal world. And I, and I do think that this is a, I think that's an old conceit, really, but I think it becomes certainly accelerated, um, exaggerated by the 20th century. And I think that we are certainly in the midst of that today, without a doubt. 
Let me ask you, Chris, in conclusion, you talk about history being weaponized in, in current cultural contests and, and battles. Do you think, is, is it idealistic to hope that greater understanding of history might lead to slightly more enlightened attitudes than we currently have? Did you hope that some good might come of the book as well as um, some interest? Well, I think that as long as the histories that we that we consider are not hyper-selective, if our historical imagination only focuses on the ideals, which are often unrealizable, and forgets the fact that you know the history of these as ideals that are you know un, really in many respects unrealistic, then uh, yes, history can be useful in that sense. Obviously, I, I think my book <laughs> could do that. But there are certain things from the past that culturally, I mean, as a culture, we have insisted upon returning to, as if. It's the past itself that will lead us to the future. I know that Roger Griffin, the historian, does a lot of really fascinating work with this in relation to his perception of, of modernism. And I, I completely, completely agree with that, the sense of the past as a kind of golden age that is the, the basis for our regenerated future. I mean, I think that we see quite a lot of that today. And the origins of this, uh, this fantasy of rebirth, I think, uh, are certainly ancient. I was talking to Christopher Forth about his recent book, Fat, A Cultural History of the Stuff of Life. It's available from Reaction Books, and in the US, distributed by Chicago University Press. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.